great to see a big crowd here. My name is, um, good evening, my name is Judy Wiseman and I'm head of the sociology department here at the LSE. And it's a great, great pleasure for me to be able to chair this session um, for the sociology department lecture given by Ulrich Beck called The Global Chaos of Love. Ulrich is a professor of sociology at the University of Munich and he's also the British Journal of Sociology centennial professor here at the LSE and he has been since 1997, I think that's some sort of record, and he's had a very long and close association uh, with us here and it's been very productive, I hope, on both sides over the years. Um, as you know, Oryx's a key contributor to sociological debates about risk, modernization, individualization, globalization, and more recently, um, cosmopolitanism. Um, he's got numerous, numerous books, but he's best known, I think, still for the book um, The Risk Society Towards a New Modernity, which has been translated and reprinted and whatnot and whatnot. Um, Perhaps fewer people here actually know that his interest in love is not so recent. Um, <laughs> he and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Beck uh, Gernsheim, wrote a book called The Normal Chaos of Love that came out anyway in English, I think, in 1995. And so it'll be very interesting to sort of hear um, where, you know, how the views have shifted since, since the point at which they wrote that book. Um, I must say I'm equally delighted to be able to introduce Professor Lynn Jameson, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Edinburgh. She co-founded um, and is co-director of a well-known centre there on research for research on families and relationships at Edinburgh University. And Lynn's research interests cover a wide spectrum, including families, households, personal relationships, sexuality and European identity. And she's currently writing a book on solo living, which probably will be of great interest to um, most of you here. Um, <laughs> just, I know, it's making huge assumptions, all right. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Yes, we're going to be getting into intimacy here, you know, for the whole evening, as you can see. Um, Lynn is actually, though, best known and very widely for her book that is called Intimacy, Personal Relationships in Modern Societies. And it's widely regarded, really, as this kind of standard feminist critique and discussion of Anthony Giddens' um, theories about intimacy. So she's really the perfect person to be here this evening to be able to act as a respondent to Ulrich's talk. Um, so how we're going to organise it is that Ulrich is going to speak for about 40 minutes and then Lynn is going to respond and then I think we'll have lots and lots of um, time for questions and discussions, which I'm very much looking forward to. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for... You're coming for your attention. Thank you, Judy, for your introduction, nice introduction. I have to say it's always exciting being at the other sea. I love to be here. It's more than just uh, a place to go. It's somehow even an element of a global love affair. <laughs> um, I have to say that Actually, if you only see one author, this is an illusion. 
because there's a second author on the stage. It's my wife, Elizabeth Beck-Gernsheim. We are writing together a book on distant love. But actually, those ideas which I'm lecturing about are the ideas of both of us. Let's start by asking what the normal chaos of love is all about. Under conditions of co-singles, divorce, post-marriage, parenthood, remarriage, same-sex couples and families, my children, your children, our children, our Indian surrogate mother children, living together, living apart, living apart together. <laughs> you have a hell of a time answering very simple questions. For example, what, what is a couple? If a couple is no longer defined by marriage license, nor by gender preferences, nor by having sex. The French sociologist Francois Kaufmann had quite a clever idea. He found an answer saying, a couple exists when two persons buy one washing machine. <laughs> because then the trouble starts. <laughs> what counts as dirty? Who washes for whom? Is ironry really necessary? And so on. But you know, this very interesting criteria, one washing machine for two persons, does obviously not work under conditions of distant love. So what, sh what changes are love and family undergoing in the global chaos of love? My point is, love becomes, becomes cosmopolitan. The belief in either or, which was still taken for granted in the national chaos of love, either we or they, either here or there, seems to be on the wane or has actually disappeared from the horizon of love. Nothing now seems to separate human beings longer in any absolute way. Neither skin color, nor national hostility, religious differences, nor the distance between continents. Therefore, I think we have to draw and develop a distinction between the social model of the national love and families and the social model of the cosmopolitan love and world families, even if they clearly overlap in reality. The national or territorial face-to-face -face model of the family defined by the unholy trinity of territory, passport, and language is now breaking down. <coughs> Increasing global mediated love, internet, scape, marriage migration, foreign domestic workers, transnational households, etc. occur. The world family model includes the variety of forms of families in which the members coexist across national and religious boundaries. At the one extreme, different native cultures coexist in a single place. 
At the other extreme, a single native culture is scattered across the world. And between these extremes, there are many transitional forms. The consequence is, even if you cannot be a bit pregnant, you can be a bit world family. All these different forms of world families call for an idea of cosmopolitization as enmanagement with a global other, rather than simply interconnectedness with something that is on the outside. Cosmopolitization, therefore, is not globalization, not only diversity or transnationalism, since neither diversity itself nor transnationalism or globality guarantee the di dialogic, interactive dimension of cosmopolitan love and family relations. Elizabeth myself invented and coined the notions of cosmopolitan love and world family to stress this border-crossing, interactive, dialogical element. This fusion of horizons which is not a condition of external agency or of self-transcending subjectivity, but an orientation that develops out of the interplay of self, other, and world in love and family relations. Long-distant love and world families, including binational couples, marriage migrants, fertility, tourists, foreign domestic workers, and transnational households are no longer marginal phenomena. They have long since taken root at the heart of the majority society. Cosmopolitan love and world families embody the contradictions of the world, and these contradictions are worked out in them. Not all families embody all contradictions, but some families embody some of them. For example, there are marriages, parents, and couples with dual nationality. And they may embody the tensions between two countries or between the majority and minority communities within those countries. While immigrant families may incorporate the tensions between the center and the periphery or between legal and illegal members. World families and long distance relationships mirror a state of ignorance that has been national, nationally program, programmed and embodied in law. It follows that cosmopolitan love and family become the setting in which the cultural wounds, the rage and the anger which globally inequalities and the imperial history continue to inspire in the souls of the living to this day are endured and fought out. In my lecture, I want to begin by briefly discussing what I call cosmopolitan theory. Then secondly, I will apply this set of ideas to love and family. And thirdly, I will address the question, do world families create cosmopolitans? First, cosmopolitan theory. We are living in an era of migration and cosmopolitization Yet until now, research on love and the family has paid scant attention to this. 
Instead, it continues to focus mostly on the forms of personal life and the relationship characteristic of the majority society. Even if they are concentrating on minorities in this society, they use the perspective of the majority. Thus, it remains, thus they remain prisoner to the unholy trinity of territory, state, and nation. In other words, it remains trapped in methodological nationalism. By this I mean that most of the social sciences, not only sociology, but many other social sciences as well, equalize society with nation-state organized society. And I think not only superficial, but down to the very basic concepts, and of course in data collection, social sciences are often still prisoners of the nation state. Yet today this frame of reference is rapidly becoming anachronistic. It cannot deal with the emergence of ever more forms of personal life and relationship that extend across all kinds of different borders. What is needed is a cosmopolitan turn in research on love and families. But what does cosmopolitan mean in terms of social theory? In order to study global intimacy and world families, there is an urgent need to clearly distinguish between cosmopolitanism on the one side, normative perspective, philosophical perspective, and cosmopolitization on the other side, which is about a, soci a sociological perspective, about a social science perspective. The normative perspective of cosmopolitanism has a long tradition, actually going back to Greek philosophy and having a huge impact, uh, for example, in Europe in the Enlightenment, being, of course, related not only always, as everybody knows, to Kant, but to many other European thinkers. But this was a normative perspective, and it has always been confronted with the objection that it is nice, but only idealistic. And it's, at the same time, an elitist position, which to some extent argues top-down and looks at cosmopolitanism from the point of view of the elites. Cosmopolitization, on the other hand, is not about norms, it's about facts. It's about a process in which the other is, because of all kinds of changes, directly involved in our own way of life, not only in families, but in many other uh, relationships as well. In family, it's, it's obvious because it is even maybe a choice, but often it isn't a, isn't a choice, but it is part of uh, being forced. And it's, it's not top-down, but it is uh, bottom-up. So cosmopolitanism is normative, is an ethics. Cosmopolitization is about facts. My argument is, 
The amendment with the other can only be understood from a cosmopolitan perspective. This is true for the study and understanding of cosmopolitization of love and family relations, but it's also true to, for example, to work relations, to state and international relationships, to religion, to classes, to global risks, to climate change, and many other phenomena. Cosmopolitan love does not mean that the individuals in love are becoming cosmopolitans. Cosmopolitan love is a condition, not necessarily a consciousness. We have to make a clear distinction between the perspective of the actor and the perspective of the social scientific observer. The word cosmopolitanism becomes indispensable for describing a situation in which, for example, in world families, but also in relation to work or global risks, humanity and world are not merely thinkable but unavoidable categories for describing the moral and political dynamics we live in. The basic idea is that life in many world families is forced to confront a host of highly contingent and contradictory effects about the realities of daily, daily life. Two, two such effects stand out. First, there is a persuasive relativation of cultural outlooks and a disruption of tradition and authority that inevitable innovatively accompanies it, accompanies it. Second, there is a constructive process of creating new ways of thinking and acting. It involves both a collective and individual transformation of identities. Viewed in this perspective, cosmopolitization is not a thin, idealistic identity that can be compared against a strong and, th and thick national identity. It is rather an internal transformation which transcends national identities from within. I will now select two phenomena among many others. First, global care chains and second, cosmopolitization of motherhood to discuss in greater detail. So first, mm -hmm. sexual division of labor and global care chains. When we speak of the family, we mostly think of emotions, of love and belonging and desire, of anger and hatred. Sometimes we romanticize the family as a heaven in a heartless world, as Christopher Lesch did. Sometimes we see it as a place filled with secrets and lies. Yet quite some time ago, feminists brought into focus that the family is not only a site of emotions, but also a site of work. This work includes a broad range of activities, often summarized by the label three C's, caring, cooking, cleaning. <laughs> and of course, far into the 20th century, these tasks were considered to be women's work, 
assigned to them by the will of God or by nature or least but not last by man. <laughs> then in the 1960s, slowly and accompanied by many uh, conflicts and contentious debates, the opposite model came to the surface. Women should take part in higher education, hold jobs, and earn their own salaries. Feminists criticizing the ongoing sexual division of labor pro proclaimed a new gender order. Both men and women, so they claimed, should be active in the labor market and in the family household as well. Both of them active in both of those spheres. But this didn't really work. Mostly because the man practiced uh, what he could call um, verbal or verbal opening by sticking to the old practice. With the exception of the Scandinavian countries, the changes are modest in scale. In most countries of the West, women still bear the greatest burden of responsibilities in regard to child caring. And when it comes to household activities, men's participation is even lower. The result is in order to make more equality in Western households possible, family work has been outsourced or insourced to women from countries of the so-called second or third world, or to put it differently, the rise of a transnational shadow economy. Thus, the family household has changed. Now, the outsourcing of labor, of sheep labor, is not only a profitable strategy of the companies, but also a strategy of the families. The family household has changed into a transnational shadow economy. When we speak of migrant domestic workers, we speak of women from all parts of the globe. Women from Mexico who work in California as nannies, women from the Philippines who care for the elderly in Italy, women from Poland who clean houses and do the laundry for German families. Faced with this high rate of faced with high rates of unemployment in their home countries, these women decided to work to look for work in the wealthier regions of the globe. Obviously, the migrant workers have to bear most of the risks. They are trapped in a semi-legal shadow economy. They often have no visa, no work permit no residence right, but at the same time, the society depends on them. So here's a contradiction if people really take seriously um, the accusation that we have many illegal workers in our countries, then they don't see actually that it is a functional necessity to have those workers, and to exclude those workers would mean that most of the society is breaking down. They are 
vulnerable to, exploit to exploitation. Three words characterize those working in the shadow economy, hardworking, cheap, illegal. Many of the women working abroad have left their families back in their home countries. In the old times, it was a proof if you love your family that you would stick together, no matter what. Yet now, in long-distant families, for many, the opposite holds true. For migrants, domestic workers all over the globe, love means having to go away. This tells us Michelle Spring. In this way, new patterns of transnational motherhood are being created. They result in global care chains. While these care chains extend in many directions, crossing borders, mountains, and oceans, they follow distinct patterns rooted in global inequality. As Hochschild puts it, mothering is passed down the race, class, nation hierarchy. The work implied by the three C's, caring, cleaning, cooking, is outsourced along the lines of nation, color, and ethnicity. This has implications for Western feminism as well, feminists being women or men. They get in some kind of trouble. Claiming equality between women, they use the global inequality between women to gain more equality to their own national partner. Thus, when we look at family from a national perspective, we find that a move toward more equality has taken place, but from a cosmopolitan perspective, the opposite picture comes into view. There is a new enmeshment with the global other occurring right in the center of homogeneous, normal, national middle-class families and households in the US, in Europe, in Israel, in South Korea, in Canada, etc. This fusion of horizons is not a condition of external agency, but an internal condition of households that develops out of the interplay of self, other, and world relations behind the facades of one passport, one language, face-to-face, -face, heterosexual or homosexual families or couples. This way, the world's antagonisms are becoming internal to the multiple families and at the same time transcend the national walls of families. Suddenly, the unequal world is personally present in the family locked behind the doors of private life. From this encounter with the excluded global poor, they, are, they, they stay excluded to some extent, but are still part of the cosmopolitanized relationship because of the dependence 
between the different mothers and the different households. On both sides of the global divide, among rich and among poor nations, family are being fundamentally transformed. While in some ways they are drawn together, become mutually dependent, at the same time they are growing further apart, moving in opposite directions. The former gain in vital resources and the latter lose. Now new hierarchies are taking shape, both within middle class families of the old center and within families without mothers in the poor nations. There is a need to distinguish between two types of cosmopolitization. With and without the dialogical element. Cosmopolitization without dialogue and interaction, for example, occurs in outsourcing capitalism between those groups of workers whose jobs are being outsourced to others in different countries or continents. This creates a negative cosmopolitization of competition without dialogue or interaction. Those workers in, in the West and in the centers and the workers in different um, regions of, of the poor world don't interact and they don't have a dialogue. But this doesn't mean that, that there isn't a relationship. There's a very important relationship of cosmopolitization which just produces, does not produce cosmopolitan sentiments or cosmopolitan movements, but just the opposite nationalistic movements and anti-cosmopolitan sentiments. In the case of global care chains, a hierarchical mixture exists. I think as far as the literature goes, the data we have, the women and the men who engage the other mother, the mother from different uh, regions of the world, don't actually care about dialogue and interaction on transnational level. They even, often don't even realize that this kind of relationship really exists, is being tabooed to some extent. But it, the opposite happened to those transnational mothers because they are in all kind of trouble wrestling with the expe expectations of their own children at home and the children the other children which they have to connect. So here are kind of, of contradictions and, and problems because of the dialogical structure and necessity uh, occur. And because they are being or have to be and, and are confronted with, with uh, contradictory expectation being a mother here and there. And in both Constellations. That is, on the one hand, in the constellation of the workers and in the constellation of the households, cosmopolitization, the enmanagement with the other, exists even or even because the other is still excluded. Of course, you can neither analyze nor understand or even see these transformations and moral and political dilemmas internal to middle class 
love and family life from a national point of view. All the, all the things you miss if you don't look, take the cosmopolitan perspective. The cosmopolitization of motherhood. The emergence of world families had to be understood in terms of the end of nature and detrationalization. In both dimensions, what was or appeared to be external to human life has become the outcome of social processes. Take, for example, the factor, factors affecting women in relation to conception and childbirth. As a result of the development of modern reproductive technologies, many traditions that used to be naturally given have become objects of human decision-making. Reproduction no longer has any necessary connection with sexuality. Virgin birth is not only possible in religious fantasies, but everyday practice. <laughs> Single individuals and same-sex couples can have children of their own produce transnational and all kind of international division of labor and being organized in some special way. Medical assisted reproduction opens a brave new world for options which we currently lack, for, for which we currently lack suitable words. The egg donor mother or the surrogate mother or expressed as a formula, my mother was a Spanish egg donor or my mother was an Indian surrogate mother. Thus, bioscientific manipulation, global inequality, is being incorporated into the human body and identity in the cosmopolitanized motherhood scapes, continents, races, classes, and religions are being becoming fused. A Hindu-Indian mother gives birth to a child to an American lesbian couple, etc. The child produced by the global division of labor are kind of biological world citizens without often knowing it. The global other is their global mother. And it's immanent and transcendent in their body and identity in the same time. My last chapter, my last question, do cosmopolitan love and world families create cosmopolitans? To give a short and direct answer, no. <laughs> Not at least necessarily, because there is no direct route leading from cosmopolitization to cosmopolitanism in the ethical, philosophical, political meaning. World families are not an assembly of world citizens. The opposite may even be the case. This paradox we need to grasp. The cosmopolitization of love and family might produce anti-cosmopolitan sentiments and movements. Mm -hmm. So in which sense are cosmopolitan couples and world families cosmopolitan? They are cosmopolitanized in the structure of their relationship but they may not be cosmopolitan in their subjectivity, orientations, consciousness, and self-understanding. To bridge the institutionalized national and religious stereotypes and enemy images of the global and everyday love and family, life makes a risk. Family life means taking a risk which requires active trust, as Anthony Giddens argues. Only thus the moment 
of hope can be kept alive. Living cosmopolitan love and living in world family is a provocation because in the national gaze, it means the end of exclusive belonging. This situation of multiple belongings and multiple identities nevertheless nevertheless is a transformative process which might lead to major reorientations and self-understanding in the light of the encounter with the other. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing that world families represent an opportunity to bond the human race into a single extended family. But the reality of long-distant relationships and family bonds is a challenge to rethink the conventional wisdom of territorially and nationally bounded love and family life. It is a challenge to prepare a powerful narrative of cosmopolitan love for the generations that follow and in whose hand will rest the responsibility for creating a sustainable planet. It seems that some people argue that multinationalism is ending. I don't mention any names. I would argue the opposite. Monoculturalism is ending. Those are the voices of the national angst in the dying days of uniculturalism. How should I conclude my lecture on the global chaos of love? Perhaps with the plea for a kind of calculated pessimism. What is cosmopolitan love? What are world families? Vessels which are in danger of shattering at the slightest disruptions. With this, I I contrast the bitter pill swallowing principle. Only those who are ready to swallow a bitter pill every day can enjoy the happiness of cosmopolitan love. Bon appetit. (laughs) Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Um, Kept a time to the second, actually. Fantastic. And um, now uh, Lynn Jameson will um, take the floor with a a short response. Okay, so thank you. Well, first, it has to be said that Beck, Ulrich Beck, and Elizabeth Beck Gernschein, in their writing, have a wonderful way, I think, of making a topic exciting and come alive um, and generating debate. And I think today Ulrich has kind of embodied that for us um, and made it palpable. Now, I think today's lecture is also a bit of a roller coaster. He's dangled the possibility that some form of cosmopolitanization Um, might help us move away from the boundaries of nation and class and the othering of racism 
that they might all dissolve if we could only get the right dialogic good kind um, and move towards cosmopolitanism. Um, but at the same time, he's thrown cold water at this, and he ends by talking about swallowing bitter pills. And the examples that, they, that he's drawn on have largely been, or perhaps even exclusively been, of the kind of bad kind of cosmopolitanization that in fact is about exploitative relationships across mm -hmm. national boundaries, across cultural divisions, um, rather than people coming to, together to celebrate a common humanity and to further the sustainability of the planet, okay? So I think it is a bit of a roller coaster um, that he's taken us on here. And in the process, he's tossed out a few critiques of us for being too blinkered by a kind of national um, context for seeing things um, in too much of a nationalist uh, nation-state frame of reference. Okay, so I'm going to try to just say a few things about this, bringing it together with empirical work, research on families and relationships. Um, in fact, I think there is quite a substantial body of research on families and relationships that doesn't just take a national frame of reference. There's a vibrant literature on transnational families, um, for example, and all of the issues that Ulrich mentions, um, you know, transnational adoption, various forms of surrogacy, uh, various forms of transnational marriage and so on, have literatures uh, that maybe would help us try to think about uh, whether we could move towards positive dialogic cosmopolitanism of the sort that he kind of holds out in front of us as a possibility. Okay, so some of the existing research is, I think, quite an, an appropriate source for this discussion. Um, and a lot of it finds that when people are doing boundary crossing, they're often also doing boundary drawing. Um, so intimacy, I, I believe, may need very particular conditions before it can co coincide with rubbing out social divisions and adding to cosmopolitanism. People who come together exceptionally across big social divides um, the Montagues and Capulets, the uh, people who are bridging a, a very active division in a, a relationship, a romantic, perhaps, relationship, uh, often have no comfortable space, no middle ground. Um, so in the existing literature on marriages between black and white people in this country, um, and bringing up children. There's by, this is work by Francis Twine. Um, there's a discussion about the strategy of working class white mothers attempting to protect their children from racism, um, actively 
encouraging their child to develop a black identity and trying to foster links with what they're seeing as a black community as their best protection against racism and the most likely source of social support. Now, such working-class mothers don't have the economic resources, the cultural resources, or the social resources um, to have access to a privileged cosmopolitan space um, or an anti-racist space. Now, some people have got more resources, or in the, the language of Pierre Bourdieu, more capitals um, for boundary crossing and being cosmopolitan or having access to spaces and dialogues that maybe are more cosmopolitan-like than others. And here at the LSE, you're probably in the more cosmopolitan privileged category. Now, the, the issue of multiculturalism was referred to and, and the fact that that is now under attack in well, it's under attack in popular and political discourse, um, as well as maybe in some other places, which are not being named. Um, the critique of multiculturalism that's often kind of brought out in that kind of discussion is complaining about people staying within cultural silos. And it's making reference, I think, to a mythic British culture, as if we were one big mixing family um, and some people with another culture are refusing to join in and there is no such British culture. Now it's true again of the literature of ethnic minority communities in the UK that they're very diverse um, and they're, the boundary crossing that they do is sometimes within a cultural frame. So it, life for a Pakistani family living in Oxford uh, may be largely organized around their kindred, some of whom live in a rural part of Pakistan where the first generation migrants left in the 1960s and arranged marriages with the kindred's assistants and sometimes with members of the kindred may help keep people within a certain frame. Um, but they are no more bounded or no more in a cultural silo than the white working class um, person growing up in the kind of area of multiple deprivation that the sociological literature describes as having binding social capital, where young people don't want to get on or get out of the neighborhood because of their close ties to friends and family. Um, now, in, in neither case is it very likely that there will be cross-marriages, um, although there are always, as I said, Montagues and Capulets. Now, claims about world families probably need to be grounded in an empirical literature that isn't just from our part of the world, um, that is also from the global south, the majority poor part of the world. Now, people like me can't really get at that other than by reading relevant studies published in English. Um, but one recurrent theme is a critique of the emphasis that we place in this part of the world and in academic writing and in academic writing that Ulrich has done 
um, on individualism, on the individual, the mo uh, there's various forms of talking about individualism. We sometimes talk about moral individualism. Um, that's the kind that's celebrated in the work of Anthony Giddens. We sometimes talk about very selfish individualism. And in some of uh, Ulrich's previous writing, it's been that kind that he's talked about. Um, but in other parts of the world, there is much more obvious cultural emphasis on people being interconnected and interdependent. Um, so, for example, writing about parent-child relationships in Mexico, um, children are recognized as interdependents and as cont contributors to the family household, um, not, not just dependents. And actually, in writing in this context here as well, Feminists have long critiqued the overemphasis on individualism and drawn attention to the fact that we are interdependent. So, for political reasons, sometimes it's very hard to get out of um, our assumptions about what good kinds of relationships are. And so, I would personally find it difficult, as I think maybe Ulrich would too. Um, to, to give up on the idea that a good relationship is an equal relationship, an, a relationship between equals. And such an idea maybe does in fact have global appeal. Um, but it can coincide with patriarchy, with uh, geographically anchored inequalities between um, men and women. So just to give you an example of that, again from Mexico and from the literature, uh, an, anthropologist, an anthropologist called Jennifer Hirsch has done a study of marital relationships and talks about the very marked change in marital relationships and the emphasis now on confianza, intimacy, mutually pleasurable sex, um, very important in marriage relationships in Mexico but at the same time can coincide, coincide with a woman having to ask her husband's permission uh, to leave the house, the husband expecting her to come like that um, with a glass of water when he snaps his fingers or whatever. Um, to give another example, the writing of Pereñas about Filipino migrant women that Ulrich has talked about, about their relationships with their children, um, both men and women from the Philippines often migrate in the name of love um, in order to send back money to their children. But when the woman does it, um, the children uh, can think she doesn't love them unless she is showing her suffering. When the man does it, it's enough that he sends back money. But when the woman does it, she has to also demonstrate that she's feeling utterly bereft um, or her love falls under suspicion. So these are kind of examples of um, costs and complications that show the coexistence of open, dialogic, loving communication and continued hierarchy um, that suggests to me that we need a lot more scaffolding around um, our understanding of what makes a good 
dialogic kind of cosmopolitan relationship possible, and love in itself isn't going to do the trick. Thank you. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we've got about half an hour now for um, questions and comments, which is great. Um, and there are mics on the floor and, and people will go around with them. I wonder if I, I should kick off with something or would you like to respond? Or, huh? Well, I just Maybe kick off. Ahead. Yeah? Sure, yeah. I, I might. I might just, um, just while, while sort of people are clearing and thinking, I might just kick off with a question myself because it always takes me a moment um, after these things. And could you put your hands up and people will, um, the people with the mics will, will get your mic and you, you can start kind of lining up with your questions and comments. Um, I just wanted to ask you both really, I was, as you were both speaking, of course, thinking about how influential Giddens' work has been on the pure relationship. And I guess I was, I was wondering about, and I think I know the answer that you're going to give actually, but I was wondering about if one reflected back on that whole discussion about the pure relationship in Giddens, whether one would say that it is no longer um, sort of relevant. You know, what's wrong with it now? Is it the case that um, in this cosmopolitan world, those kind of theories that have been so influential you know, no longer sort of have the force they had. And um, anyway, you give the, you, you give the I, I know what you'll say, but you give the answer. Oh. Can sort well, of I'm, I'm not quite sure about this. Um, well, first of all, um, the pure relationship uh, Tony Giddens is talking about is something uh, he thinks of, of intimacy of being opened up to the other to some extent and he is quite optimistic that the mm. breakup of the conventional and and hierarchical roles uh, gender roles in, in intimacy and and family life uh, well uh, going to change to a better even if he is pessimistic at the same time but yeah. there's an optimistic yeah element in there. And I think to some extent, uh, well, there's uh, on the, in, in a different way uh, in, in the cosmopolitan constellation of distant love works. And we have to be careful what we are talking about. And so many uh, different forms of world families. For a moment, talking about distant love. Distant love is a special um, relationship, a special pure relationship. Because to, to make a short, to make a long story short, uh, distant relationships don't have any sex. They don't have any a direct interaction. They are just they don't have children. So um, uh, they are just uh, to some extent, as long as they're distant relationship, listening. Their senses are about listening and hearing. Maybe they're getting a special sophistication in, in listening. Maybe there could be even a sexual dimension to this. I don't know about this, but actually it is a very specific way of, of intimacy and love, and maybe even the dialogical element becomes more important, and therefore, to some extent, there's a pure relationship, maybe not in the sense 
uh, Tony had in mind than in, in the face-to-face -face everyday national relationship. And there's another aspect which I just would like to bring up. Um, I think Tony is thinking in two dimensions about this. And I, I'm not sure if I, I really liked reading your, uh, your respondents to, to Tony, but since Tony is a good friend, I have a little bit to defend him. <laughs> um, Tony is thinking, well, first of all, actually, Tony is, is like myself, one of the few men who really tried to learn from feminists, you know? And, and, and this means we are mostly criticized by feminists to some extent. Well, no, I don't mean that, really. The point is that actually I think there are two dimensions which have to be taken into account. On the one is the ongoing reality of inequality and all the points which have been made. On the other hand, in, in love and, and the background of love, there's um, a, a normative, idealistic image about good love and about uh, something which we should have as a, as a value a background for judging, which is actually connected very much to, to equality and openness, even if this is not realized. You know, maybe from a more theoretical perspective, or picking up quite a different author like like uh, Jürgen Habermas, who says we are we are all are always in a in a um, in a idealistic, realistic, idealistic situation of ideal speech situation where we where we do have some normative backgrounds. I think this is true in the family relation in a very specific way too, and we have to make this distinction. And I think he does it. He knows quite well that all kind of, uh, of all kind of power relations and gender inequalities are still happening, but at the same time, maybe this idealistic element is still present. And I think this even becomes more important in the cosmopolitan mm -hmm. constellation mm -hmm. because it is actually part of this, all the trouble which is coming up if you try to, to marry and love beyond borders. Mm. Thanks. Uh, well, well, I mean, I, there is, I, I agree that having ideals remains quite good and important, um, even if the gap between the ideal and the reality is enormous. And actually, I suppose I do think that gender equality is not, you know, the literature even on domestic uh, life in the UK suggests there's still quite a lot of inequality. So it's not the case that it's all been outsourced um, still here, but nevertheless, the pure relationship as an ideal um, maybe has a very positive side. But I guess my own understanding of the empirical literature is that in practice, it often doesn't feel enough um, just to be told and talked with. Um, and actually, at some points in life, if somebody can't be there literally, um, you know, to help, then the relationship is very difficult for it to survive. So a distance relationship's definitely got uh, limits. Um, a pure distance relationship would have limits, like when it comes to needing certain kinds of practical care and practical assistance, 
Um, some things can be orchestrated and coordinated from a distance, but sometimes actually being there um, is really important. I can vouch for this being a mobile phone researcher and uh, working on mediated relationships, which is um, something that might be interesting to discuss. But can we have some hands up, please? Let's um, get stuck in, so to speak. Have we... There's one there and... Okay. Thank you. Is it on? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Uh, first of all, thank you for the uh, lecture. It's really good to hear a good lecture as uh, somebody who studies sociology and now works in a bank to be able to sponsor my cosmopolitan uh, way of life and my cosmopolitan relationship. Um, but I was wondering whether you um, research or whether you thought or whether it is possible, in your opinion, to, in this kind of globalizing, cosmopolitizing world, to have people who, in the same time, are cosmopolitans and to extreme non-cosmopolitan in the same person. And just to give the example, um, myself, I'm a Polish national. I live in a foreign country. I have a long-distance relationship with a person of a totally different nationality. Now, I can imagine a situation where you know, we, 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 we move to a third country or we even adopt kids from the third country if I want to continue my career. Um, and at the same time, you would expect this kind of people to, um, to be really cosmopolitan, to, to, to understand, to, to have many international friends, to be true to those ideals of multiculturalism, etc. At the same time, I can imagine this kind of couple to have, let's say, a Romanian maid and not be even interested in the fact that she's having kids in a, in a different country or what is the impact. I even to take into extreme, I can imagine the same couple to, you know, a, a, in a current um, economic climate to say I'm going to vote for a party who's going to ban any non-EU you know, non immigrants coming to this country. Having a totally split personality based on, let's say, class uh, or, 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 or the circles they, they are, they are you know, working or, or, or living in. Well, do you want me to take a few at once, maybe? Maybe, huh? maybe, we'll, maybe we'll just take another couple. There's a chap up here. So I just think there'll be a lot, so I just want yeah. yeah. Yes. I have more question on cosmopolitanization. Uh, you, you, speak, you speak as cosmopolitanization as a, a, a social fact. And I would be interested to, to hear you on the question of institutions. We still see in the world that we have mainly uh, national states. The United Nations is mainly, mainly ruled and made by national states. And I would like to, to know if you have a, a proposal uh, in, in that field of maybe new institutions uh, for the world. Okay, well, why don't we just take those two as they're on very different yes. sort of themes. Well, thank you very much. First, the, I think it's uh, this word cosmopolitan has all kind of misunderstandings, all kind of, of associations. It's one of those words, you know, where everybody has his own narrative in his mind, like, like I don't know, genes or, 
or democracy or something. There are all kind of associations with this word, so we have to be very careful. Um, if I understood you correctly, you seem to think of cosmopolitan um, long-distant relationships as something, uh, as relationships which are not based in, in local context. But I think this is, would be one of the misunderstandings. Actually, uh, well, uh, we still have this idea of cosmopolitans being multiple flyers, you know, looking always in the, in the business launches, sitting in the business launches, and being an elite and, and reading Kant or something like that. But this isn't the case. This is not the case I have in mind. You, you know, cosmopolitan, I think, first of all, it's not global. It is always located. It's all cosmopolitan is always located. It's about having, uh, to, use a, to use a metaphor, of having roots and wings at the same time. It is not this old image of just flying around. And it's not an elite concept either. It is, this is to some extent, I think was a misunderstanding, maybe a misunderstanding, uh, which I at least somehow heard. It is a very everyday thing uh, related, for example, to people who don't have any resources, no, no educational resources, no uh, visas, nothing like this, but still have to interact between borders and have some competences to uh, react to those very differences. So the second question, yes, institutions are national and therefore all kind of relationships have all kind of problems for example if you want to have if you want to marry in in Denmark to pick up one of those examples you have a hell of a problem you, because you have to go in so many details uh, the same is true in Germany you know you have to maybe even talk about your grandmother and so on and so on and the grandmother of your wife which comes from Africa doesn't have a grandmother so all kind of problems are coming up so uh, often there's a migrate tourism you go there where it's easier to to marry and in, indeed I think the aspect of of cosmopolitan constellations of family and love are always confronted with those institutional obstacles. Institutions are actually mostly obstacles. Of course, they try to, to turn them around into possibilities and opportunities, but then they often get criminalized because then they are just using those, those norms to maximize their own interests. So I think there's a very deep contradiction between institutional structures and institution, uh, inst uh, national institutions and structures and expectations in having binational families, transnational uh, love relationships and so on because it is against those rules and institutions and because it incorporates all the inequalities of the lives where those people or individuals come from. Okay. We'll just take a couple mm -hmm. more. Yeah. All right. Sorry, did, we, did you have one at the... Huh? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, we got a mic. Where is one? Yeah. Sorry, there's one just here. It just... Yeah. Ian Ray Todd. I'm an LSE alumnus. 
and I dropped in out of curiosity. You need to speak right into it. Thank you. Can you hear me better now? Thank you. I said, I'm Ian Ray Todd, I'm an LSE alumnus, and I dropped in out of curiosity, uh, not least to hear the great Ulrich Beck. Um, to develop the theme you've just picked up uh, about Denmark, uh, as one aspect of what I wanted to ask you about, uh, much of the migration, marriage migration, from outside, or from Denmark into other countries, is motivated by uh, the presence of uh, a movement within Denmark which is now said to speak for something like 15% of the population uh, headed by Mama Pia uh, which is hostile to uh, immigration into Denmark. You'll know that the, um, the ferry between Copenhagen and uh, Malmo used to be called the Love Ferry. Um, it, it is so more so now for people particularly who wish to escape, it was for a time for people who wish to escape from Denmark to the more liberal conditions in Sweden to marry there if they were of different ethnic origins, particularly if one of them was Dan Danish. That may well be an escape route which is about to close because a similar movement is, is in the process, it would seem, of evolution in Sweden, though not to the, uh, to the same extent. To what extent is your qualify confidence about the evolution of uh, this cosmopolitan society, especially in Northern Europe, uh, further qualified by that kind of development, particularly if these people get to a point where they not only have the ear of legislators, but they have an input into the legislative machine themselves. The person behind. Actually, could people try and keep their questions uh, rather shorter? We've got quite a few uh, hands Thank up. you. Uh, we believe there exists some common good values behind the conventional love. So is there any value behind the long-distance love or cosmopolitan love? If there is, so what is that value? And does these values intensify or hinder those convention, conventional love values? I didn't quite get it, sorry. I didn't what, get the question, the I'm sorry. You, can you say, what I, do think, you I think the question is about what kind of values underpin cosmopolitan love, is that, is that correct? Is that what you're asking? What I'd, kind I'd, of value behind the cosmopolitan value hinder or intensify the conventional love values? So you're trying to get a comparison between conventional love and cosmopolitan love. You yeah, want that right. clarified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, we take just one more while we're going. I think there, there's a chap right at the back. Gentleman, I should say. <laughs> um, I'm, I regret to say that I was quite disappointed by Professor Beck's lecture. Um, and uh, and essentially, I wondered what's new, what's special. I mean, he was saying, it appeared to me, maybe I misunderstood, that on the one hand, all that stuff happening is enmeshing. On the other hand, it's not enmeshing. Then he was telling us that the childcare and the cleaning is outsourced to these Polish and Filipina women. What's new? I've known them for 20 years. Then he, be, he seemed to be saying that sometimes this stuff happening the last 20 years is leading to the hiders of the world, that Austrian Freedom Party leader, 
and sometimes it leads to the English Defence League. What's new? I've known that for the last... I'm German. I've known that for a long, long time. Um, and sometimes he seemed to be saying to me that the cosmopolitan relationships practically exist and sometimes we are not aware of it or conscious of it. So where's the chaos? I don't know this. And all this stuff... Okay, thank you. So the question the is, question what's is new? I've the, got, I think the, we've got that. Thanks. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. The question is that the whole categorical approach, I would claim, is wrong. I just look at the economic situation and know the answers. And that's my question. Didn't you miss these, this category? What, the economic? Is that what you're saying? Miss the economic category. Okay. Okay. Right. Want to have a bash at whatever you can? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> well, the first question, to some extent, if I, um, if I understood you correctly, was related to Europe and its specific conditions on the one hand being national and the other hand being transnational at the same time. Uh, I uh, wrote a book uh, on Europe and one of the issues which I had in mind trying to show if there is a, uh, on everyday life, if there is a European, if there is a European family or European, uh, yeah, what you could call uh, Europe on the level of family life and everyday life. And of course there is, we know it, there are all kind of marriages across borders and, and things like that inside of Europe even if there are lots of difficulties at the same time. But interesting enough, um, uh, I couldn't answer this question because the social sciences are still only or mainly related to the national perspective. You can find out how many binational couples there in Germany or in Britain or whatsoever, but you cannot find out about those interesting uh, European binational couples and relationships. So I found this is quite interesting. We do have maybe some ideas about the institutional structure of Europe, but we don't know how everyday European life as exercised between different um, national traditions of family really work and what, what this means. Uh, what is the difference between um, cosmopolitan and conventional love and its values in the background. Well, one of the, if you compare those types of relationships, it is first of all interesting that most of the time we think of in, in love relationships as patterns which pre-exist uh, between individuals who have a common language, who have one passport and who are living territorially together. Even if we think about all kind of uh, pluralization of relationships, these background assumptions are still actually the most important ones. There is a whole literature that um, for, for, by, by many very interesting sociologists who say relationships is actually how strangers become partners and couples. But the way they talk about strangers is still inside of the national context. And so we are not ready, really, to find out what strangeness means beyond borders and what it is related, what it means in relation to, to um, uh, uh, love and, and family um, dynamics. Uh, I think the main 
difference is the ability and the interest to get engaged and love with a person who is not basically from the same origin, who speaks a different language, who has different uh, backgrounds, historical backgrounds, and so on. This is actually the adventure, which is part of, of this kind of, of love relationship, and which I think is actually a new way of, of romanticizing a love relationship, which is which is uh, uh, not only um, relationship uh, in in the categories of direct interaction. Well, um, I always appreciate very much if there's a real critical voice, um, and uh, I think indeed you could argue that the concept of cosmo of cosmopolitization lacks clarity to some extent. It has a very, maybe very different, maybe even contradictory consequences. But I think this is exactly the interesting point about this category, because it opens us up to a reality in which we are forced often to relate ourselves to distant and strange others, which are being part of our own way of life, even if we don't want this to happen, and even if we have reactions which exclude the other even more. I think the discussion on, on, on the critique of multiculturalism is actually the reaction of the inability of nation states or political actors to exclude the other in the old way. The other is in our midst and cannot be excluded anymore because of all kind of new uh, interconnectedness in relation to global risks, in relation to internet, in relation to controversies on, on, on uh, the global media and so on. So I think actually this is what informs us about reality that on the one hand we have a maybe unwanted relationship to the other and on the other hand this doesn't mean that we become cosmopolitans that we have a cosmopolitan orientation but just but just can just mean the opposite that we develop anti-cosmopolitan sentiments and movements great is there one last um, question? Oh gosh, there's a f there's a few. Um, I might I'll take one of my own students. Can I? <laughs> this chap here. Sorry, I, there's another one. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you so Just, much for organizing this evening, and it was a wonderful talk. And I would like to hear both uh, Professor Beck and uh, Jameson, uh, Professor Jameson speak about the relationship of power, specifically as it related to the topic of egg donation coming into, say, the UK or the Global North or whatever terminology you want to use. Because there is a very good reason that we're having, or that there is a large amount of egg donation coming in and that there is not a large amount of sperm donation coming in. So if we could think about 
the gendered aspect of it and how it relates to power and the women that are in the areas that are bringing or donating, if we can use that word, the eggs to the Western society or global north and what resources they have available to them for post-care in case anything goes wrong with all of the medication and procedures that go along with it. Thanks. Uh, okay. Um, thank you. It's an interesting issue, isn't it, egg donation? I, I mean, even, I think in your question, there's an assumption, well, I'm, I'm not, maybe there isn't an assumption, but if, even if it was really well done um, in the sense of all the care and aftercare that you would possibly want um, was present, um, would it be, would then that make it fine um, and everything would be nothing to worry about, if you like? I guess if the only people giving eggs are from poorer countries and the only people receiving them are from rich countries, um, then I would always have an unease about that as an unfair trade and that it was something that people were doing because they didn't have any other choices, um, that there was no other way that they could make that kind of money. Um, and I would have an unease about it. <clears throat> yes, I would agree with this. It's often um, enforced and the powerless who are um, getting part of this process of, of being outsourced and insourced into middle class families and, and households at the same time. But this issue of power again as the issue of inequality uh, in in the concept or in the uh, in the concept or the notion of cosmopolitization is even more interesting and difficult because on the one hand because of these new relationships it's new transnational relationships inside of homes normal homes even more radical inequality is being part of the national context you know there's the more radical inequality being a common normal relationship because the global uh, inequality is being part in the, in the national context. And often we don't realize this because the class category normally doesn't allow such uh, differences in, in the same context. But on the other hand, and this makes the thing so complicated, but interesting at the same time, those mothers in global care chains are um, inhabitants of, let's say, two frames of reference of inequality. One related to the national context where they work, and often they are quite, uh, have a very difficult position being illegal, and so on and so on. But at the same time, they are related to their family at home. And in, relation, in, in this context, they often seem to be rich. Their children even believe that they are rich, and they believe, why doesn't my mother come back? Because she, she is rich. So she is upgraded with all problematic, problematic implications in, uh, on, on, the, on the hierarchical level. Uh, in, in, in the frame of reference of her background. So actually, we have a collision of two frames of reference of inequalities. 
And it's not easy to figure out what the position of those persons are. On the one hand, you can say those w women are even more exploited uh, than many others. On the other hand, there are elements that they get even, that there is a moment, I don't know if you agree with this, there's a moment of emancipation because they are, they are getting the money. They are earning the money. Uh, the men left at home are getting uh, devalued. So uh, they, they are experiencing new worlds. They are opening up to, to new languages and, 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 and new ways of, of life. So there are lots of different aspects happen in, in this position. And we are used to only use, we are, we are actually normally in, in methodological nationalism, only use one frame of reference. And this doesn't inform us about this multi-faced uh, power relationships and the dynamics of those transnational relationships. Anyway, that's a very fine provocation to end on, actually. Um, I'd like to thank you very, very much for being a great audience. Um, there's a reception. Hang on! <laughs> You're clapping yourself.